a reading from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O divine ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory owed his name. Prostrate yourselves before the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Hark, the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord upon mighty waters. Hark, the Lord comes in strength. Hark, the Lord comes in splendor. Hark, the Lord is breaking cedars. The Lord is shattering the cedars of Lebanon and making them skip to and fro like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a calf of a wild ox. Hark, the Lord cleaving flames of fire. Hark, the Lord stirring up the wilderness. The Lord stirring up the wilderness of Kadesh. Hark, the Lord makes does writhe in labor and strips bare forests and in his temple everyone is saying glory. The Lord is enthroned upon the flood. The Lord is enthroned, King Eternal. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord has blessed his people with peace. The word of God for the people of God. Our second reading this morning comes from the second letter to Timothy, beginning in the third chapter at the 14th verse. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof and correction, and for training in righteousness. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer, so that whether it's because of me or in spite of me or even sometimes in spite of what we read in the Bible, it would still be your word faithfully proclaimed and your name glorified. Amen. All scripture is inspired by God. Hang on, all of it? I mean, I'm all for the Lord is my shepherd kind of stuff, but all of it? Even the slavery and death and rampant glorification of war. Even that time that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his child and we just pass it off as some kind of test. 
Even the books that sanction genocide as some kind of twisted self-defense against the influence of foreign theology? Or what about the fact that half the women who make it into the Bible are only mentioned because something horrible happened to them? Okay, so maybe the content isn't inspired in and of itself. Maybe it's only inspired when we read it. Except, well, these days it seems like people only want to talk about Scripture to try and justify what they already believe. It's pretty hard to be inspired by God if you know what you're going to read before you read it. All Scripture is inspired by God? How can we possibly believe that when even pastors sometimes use scripture as a tool for division and even hatred and violence? If it's so easy to misuse, should we even have it? Maybe we keep the old favorites, you know, most of the Jesus story, love is patient, love is kind, in the beginning God created, that sort of thing. But well, since we're asking about futures this month anyway, should scripture even have one? As Joya mentioned, I happen to be a biblical scholar, which means I think every good future starts in the past. So let's start at the beginning. I don't mean Genesis, I mean the beginning beginning. Well, not the beginning beginning, I mean the beginning of scripture. Before there was a canon, or an Isaiah, or a Torah, before there were scribes, or a Moses, or an Israel of any kind. Before there was any of that, there was Psalm 29. Well, not Psalm 29, there wasn't a Psalter yet, and it wouldn't have been 29th of anything. And as it happens, you wouldn't have known it was about God, at least not our God. But by all appearances, you probably would have recognized it. All scripture is inspired by God. That's what they say, anyway. That's what they say when they're trying to get you to believe what they believe. That's what they say, as if it proves our religion is uniquely true and everyone else's is totally false. As if it means we have to keep the Bible the tradition, separate, safe, secure from anything that looks like outside influence. The problem with that is, Scripture has literally never been free of outside influence. The very first piece of Scripture we have probably wasn't about our God to begin with. The very first piece of scripture we have was originally a hymn to Baal. Yeah, that Baal. You know, the one the Bible spends incessant chapters complaining about all the kings worshiping the Baals and the Ashtarot. Well, not exactly that Baal, but close enough. See, in the early days, Israel didn't actually worry that much about other deities stealing God's thunder or care much about keeping themselves separate 
from the peoples around them. They, in the early days, they had this solid set of tribes that developed into a solid little kingdom. Their identity came from their families and their land and their temple and all those little unquantifiable things that come from living a full life. And most of all, they felt safe and secure as a people. And when you're feeling safe and secure, it doesn't feel like some kind of life-threatening vulnerability to trade ideas and poetry and practices with your neighbors. No, it feels like the utmost in creativity, in open friendship, in thriving as a community. So that's exactly what Israel did in the early days. They borrowed the language of divinity from the region around them that lingered after the northern city-state of Ugarit had fallen. They used the names of those old deities for their own god, names we still use today, like Ael and Elyon and Eternal One. They used the same imagery as was used for those old gods for their own, riding the storms like Baal and trampling a vineyard like the goddess Anat. They even named their people, not Israel, after God's actual name, but Israel. It was such a non-issue that they were willing to steal foreign hymns and sing them to their own God without changing much of anything but the divine name in the process. Psalm 104, for instance, looks like someone copied off the desk of the Egyptian who wrote the great hymn to the Aten, one of their biggest hymns to the sun, because I guess plagiarism wasn't as big of a deal back then. And Psalm 29, which we heard read just a few minutes ago, probably the earliest text we have in our entire Bible, looks for all the world like it was originally a hymn to Baal, and someone just liked how it sounded, and just changed the name to Yahweh, which turns out to have been a good change in the end, once Assyria and Babylon started conquering Israelite cities. Pretty soon, the Israelites didn't feel so safe and secure anymore, and suddenly, maintaining any kind of difference they could between themselves and their neighbors became their only remaining source of identity. The Phoenicians had inherited half the old Ugaritic pantheon, so suddenly all those deities were anathema. Any mention of them was purged from the tradition. Their names could no longer be used for our God. If they hadn't changed Baal to Yahweh long ago, Psalm 29 would never have made it into the Psalter. And for all that it's weird and archaic, it's beautiful. All scripture is inspired by God. That's what they say, but what if it's an old Canaanite holy text that we just borrowed way back when? What if it was originally a hymn that used to be sung to gods, that, that, to a deity that turned into the deity that most irritates half the other people who wrote the rest of the Bible? What if it's a hymn to a God whose name we can't even use for our God anymore? Is it still scripture anymore? 
Is it still inspired? Was it ever inspired? I'd say people ask me why I study the Bible all the time, but they actually don't. Most of the time when I say what I do, people give me the, please don't talk about religion, please don't talk about religion look. It looks like, mm, cool. <laughs> when they do ask, I usually say it's because I like learning old dead languages, which is true. But the real answer, which is the long answer, is that this is the mystery that we are left with by the thousands of years of our tradition. All scripture is inspired by God. And that scripture starts with this hymn to a God who developed into the deity who most irritates half the other people who wrote the Bible. We have a Bible that might be inspired by God if we could just figure out what that actually means, but also has all these stories where stuff happens that it's pretty blatantly not inspired by God in any way, shape, or form. We have a Bible that contradicts itself constantly, even though there were generations upon generations of editors and redactors and compilers of the canon who had every opportunity to make sure none of those contradictions ever made it to us. And they're still there. There are multiple copies of some stories, some one right after the other, some woven together, and at no point does it seem like any of the editors thought that was anything but exactly what we needed? We have apocalyptic literature that makes absolutely no sense, except when the world seems to be absolutely falling apart. And the only kind of hope that actually seems real is the kind you get from a text that can't offer you any better than Everything is awful, there are monsters falling from the sky, but don't worry, after everything dies, God will make something new. We have pretty explicit love poetry, and the kind of accounting, endless accounting, that makes your eyes glaze over unless you are an accountant. And we have 35 chapters of one guy ranting at God while his friends tell him, oh, no, no, it's just because you're a bad person and you just won't admit it, until God shows up, terrifying as all get out, but actually only yells at the friends for being unhelpful and not at Job, except for a little bit, because Job kind of asked God to show up and be dramatic. The Bible is so weird. <laughs> and that's the real reason I study the Bible because it's weird and sometimes incoherent and almost always mysterious. And there's no indication that anyone who had any hand in shaping it meant it to be anything else. One of the things I love most about our Methodist tradition is what's called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. See, unlike a lot of the denominations that came out of the Protestant Reformation, we aren't what's called a sola scriptura church, which is Latin for scripture alone. Martin Luther thought that there were all these things that we had to believe happened by themselves, like that we're saved by faith and grace alone and not by our deeds, or that scripture alone is enough to determine all the theology and practice of the church. 
But John Wesley disagreed about Scripture. He thought it was primary, but he didn't think it was sufficient for its own interpretation, which meant it couldn't be sufficient to determine all the doctrine and practices for us as Christians. Instead, Scripture is like the seat of a three-legged stool. It's the part that supports us, but it can't stand unless it is itself supported by tradition, reason, and experience. That's the Wesleyan quadrilateral. We start with Scripture and perhaps end with it, but in the meantime, we have to rely on the wisdom of those who have gone before us to figure out what Scripture really means. Everyone from the people of the ancient Near East that we can steal hymns from and who were the original audiences of these texts, to the early church and the medieval mystics who taught us to love God in poetry, to the saints of our own denomination and the family and friends who have gone before us in these very pews. But tradition isn't enough on its own. Sometimes we get stuck in habits that no longer give life because, you know, it's just easier to do what we've always done. So we have to rely on our own God-given capacity to reason and analyze so we can determine what's truly worth keeping and what traditions and interpretations need a little updating or adapting to new contexts, just like at Pentecost. But we also believe in a God who becomes incarnate in a human body, which means our reason isn't complete unless it involves our embodied emotive experience. John Wesley was never overly fond of systematic theology. For him, faith was hands-on, practical work, being the hands and feet of Christ in the world. So if our interpretations align with tradition and reason, but don't actually lead us to feed the hungry, heal the sick, free the oppressed, and they're simply not doing the work of God. More than anything, it's my Wesleyan theology that makes me think scripture can have any kind of future. So many people treat the Bible as this kind of almost divine rule book that is meaningful because it's to some degree actual things God says to us, whether literally or sort of indirectly. But I just don't think that's quite how inspiration works. The word scripture isn't important just because it's some manifestation of the word, Jesus, that we can hold in our hands. And it's not important because God spoke it once and for all in ancient Palestine, but because it's one of the most significant ways that God becomes present to us here and now, exactly as we are. Scripture carries truth in it, not because it isn't, but because it is so deeply and irrevocably human. And that in that mysterious divine way, God even still speaks through it, sometimes in spite of it. In the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus meets us 
in the midst of everything that is terrifying and broken and violent about human life and shows us God simply by being there and present with us, even when we are suffering under the weight of empire and don't know how to get out. And that's exactly how scripture brings us God. Not by being God itself, but by showing us the unaltered truth of human life, the good, the bad, and the really ugly. And in the midst of even those stories about ourselves that horrify us, and the portraits of God that make us want to run away and never darken the doorstep of a church again, the Spirit still meets us as Jesus meets us in the midst of everything that is terrifying and broken and violent about human life. And says, I see you. And I am with you you. And you're right. This stuff is horrifying. But you should know that there is nothing humans can say or do that will make me run away and leave you to face it alone. All scripture is inspired by God. That's what they say, but it's probably better translated, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is that sometimes beautiful, sometimes scary, and always a little chaotic deep. That the spirit of God moves over in the first moments of creation. God stirs up the chaos to make something new out of what seems like Nothing. Something that we can live and thrive within. Something that with a little work, sometimes with a lot of work, might just hold the image of God within it. As long as that same spirit of creation is moving over the chaos to make something new, as long as God is willing to bring resurrection even despite our human fondness for destruction, there will be a future for scripture. But more importantly, there will be a future for us. Thanks be to God. Amen.